0: Instinct, reincarnation, and God in our brains. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. he got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. This fall, I'm traveling the country to promote my new book, Finding God in the Waves. And you can find out if I'm going to be in your town by visiting findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour. New dates in Boston and Portland were just announced and more are coming all the time. I hope to see you there, but for now, let's get it started. Hey, Mike, I have a question about instinct. What is it? Where does instinct come from? Uh, How is it passed on from generation to generation? Is it genetics? And is it a product of evolution? Or is it kind of in our brain makeup? And if that's the case, does that actually mean that we're simply passing along memories? Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Instinct and how it evolves. Thanks. Instincts are unlearned complex behaviors that we see in organisms. Now they're they're different than memories, right? Memories uh, are the resulting emergent phenomenon from the shaping of a brain by its environment, specifically an environmental stimulus. That's a memory. Um, and instincts are different. Instincts are more related to drives. Or impulses that that get processed through an organism's cognitive capacity, right? So, which means you kind of uh, need to have a reasonable cognitive capacity in order to have an instinct, which is different than a reflex. Let's talk a little bit about that. The most simple form of instincts are what we call fixed action patterns. And a fixed action pattern is a sequence of actions that happen in response to a given stimulus. A couple of examples might be easier to follow. Uh, For many species of moth, if you blast them with some ultrasound, if you expose them to high frequency sound of enough intensity, their wings will immediately fold up and they'll just drop. They'll stop flying, which is a great instinctual response to the presence of a bat, right? Bats look, with, look for prey with ultrasound. And so moths have evolved this response and this instinct. Uh, some bird mating dances are fixed action patterns. They're a sequence of actions and behaviors related to some stimulus, maybe a, a time of year, a certain amount of rainfall, and the presence of a female creates this instinctual mating dance in many species of bird. Okay, so those are fixed action patterns. Now that's different from a reflex. Reflexive actions are unlearned just like instincts, but reflexes are very simple actions and may not even involve a given organism's brain at all. Okay, your knee tap uh, doesn't require a, a lot of higher brain function or brain interaction in humans. That's a reflexive action. Uh, now, examples of um, you know more elaborate instinctual drives: baby sea turtles hatch from shells and immediately move towards the ocean with no instruction, uh, but it's a complicated behavior which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, stickleback fish attack the color red, not the shapes of other fish. So if you have, you know, a a male stickleback fish in a tank and he is in a a mating drive and you put a very realistic fish uh, in the water, he'll ignore it, even if it's shaped like another male stickleback. But if you take like a, a wooden square and hold it corner up and paint the bottom red and put it in the tank, That male stickleback fish will attack it, and it's pretty complicated. Now, where on earth is that behavior coming from? What we understand in science today is these instincts are driven by DNA, but you would say, how on earth can DNA carry behaviors or memory? Well, it's not just DNA. It's an interaction of DNA and developmental environment that the organism developed in. That includes its, its uh, gestation. That includes uh, you know growth. There's all these factors um, because uh, DNA is not just a blueprint. B- DNA does lay out how you're going to develop, but it's conditional. It's conditional based on what resources you as an organism get as you develop, and that may change the expression of your genes. And because of that, Instincts are emergent phenomena. They're not directly coded into DNA, but they emerge from the action of DNA guiding the development of an organism molecule by molecule. Okay, So for example, DNA lays out the template for a nervous system. It doesn't define everything that the nervous system will do. It just defines how it develops and how it's structured. But the structure of that nervous system contains information, contains conditional operations of its own. It's really quite miraculous. So this means, this emergence means that a nervous system is capable of greater complexity than the DNA from which it came, right? There's a lot of information stored in human DNA, but nowhere near as much information as can be stored in a human brain. Now, instincts are drives that come from this emergent behavior between a nervous system and DNA, genetic development, that are filtered through cognition. And this can allow multiple simple behaviors that are DNA-driven to stack into very complex behaviors and rituals. Let's think back to our stickleback fish with the impulse to attack the color red. But attack, if you think about it, is a complex thing. It's a coordinated action of swimming, respirating, biting, defensive strategies... All these different behaviors coalesce into the expression of this instinct. And so that's why we say it's an emergent phenomenon. Multiple, more simple base functions are assembling to create an instinct. The core drive, get the color red, filters through the fish's cognition, and brings other functions and systems of that fish to bear in fulfilling the instinct. Now, this is absolutely driven by evolution. It's absolutely driven by evolution, and DNA that expresses an instincts that are beneficial to an organism in a given environment at a given time is more likely to be passed on. Now, you mentioned something about is it related to memory? Do we pass on memories? That's controversial in the sciences, but let's look at one study. One study found that if you took mice and uh, exposed them to an unpleasant electrical shock when they smelled cherries. Those mice grew to be fearful of the cherries. And then a second generation of mice that were not shocked were fearful of the cherries. And then a third generation, isolated from the first two, were also afraid of cherries. This would seem that through some epigenetic function, some outer DNA function, epigenetic has to do with the types of molecules that surround DNA, and many scientists believe they can carry information through reproduction beyond what DNA can carry that help organisms be primed for the environment that they're going to live in, would mean that to some degree a fear of cherries was being passed on generationally. Now that that's Controversial results, some scientists reject it There's considerable discussion and debate But this is not some racial memory Or generational memory Psychic phenomenon This is well-grounded science With uh, with studies to back it up And the debate is what's driving the results And how good was the methodology But I, I include that to say DNA is, there's so much information And it's so complicated That a surprising amount of information Can be passed from generation to generation and therefore can also be shaped by evolution via natural selection. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hey Mike, I discovered your show a couple of weeks ago thanks to Peter Enns and have greatly enjoyed it. Your irenic viewpoint and honest sharing of your story have been very valuable to me, even in such a short period of time. My question is, what are your thoughts on the possibility of reincarnation? I grew up thinking it was a strange idea reserved for people in other religions, but now that I'm more open to other belief systems, I find myself wondering if it could be true in some way. This is particularly in light of what we know about consciousness and its dependence on biological systems and the way our cells are constantly being recycled through a global web of interdependence, not to mention... That we are no longer living in a world of dualism where the identity is separate from the body. Put it differently, is there a chance I could have been born a sea cucumber? Thanks so much, David." Well, first of all, David, I don't know that we're living in a world uh, where dualism is dead. I think uh, a belief in a separation between consciousness and the body is still very common, especially in Western societies. Although I agree, uh, more people are becoming open to the idea, either through a return to older forms of Judeo-Christian theology or through materialist philosophies, that consciousness and the body are interdependent and related to each other. But what does that have to do with reincarnation and what can we learn? Uh, Well, let's talk a little bit about what the definition for reincarnation is. To begin with, I went to dictionary.com and looked up reincarnation because I wanted to be sure that whatever I said fit accepted beliefs about reincarnation. And there's three definitions listed. One is the belief that the soul, upon the death of the body, comes back to earth in another body or form. That's the most widely used definition for reincarnation. Number two is rebirth of the soul in a new body. And number three is a new incarnation or embodiment as of a person. So if we look at some of the things you hinted at in your question, the idea that, for example, some of your atoms were almost certainly in a sea cucumber at some point or part of a sea cucumber uh, and click up a little bit in complexity, Your DNA is certainly an arrangement of information that has been present in your ancestry, and the more recent ancestor, the more closely that your uh, DNA is a continued manifestation of that particular arrangement of information. Um, But reincarnation tends to speak uh, of the soul returning to a new body, Uh, or the embodiment of a person, and I think we would agree that your atoms aren't necessarily an embodiment of your person, and neither is your DNA. The things we associate with you and your identity are much higher on the scale of emergence, your beliefs, your behaviors, your code of ethics. Now, that's an idea often included in certain religious ideas, about reincarnation through the teachings of karma, the weight of moral actions moving across embodiments or manifestations of a given soul. And since this is Ask Science Mike, and your question seems to have a science tinge, we have to look at kind of what science would try to do to address this question about reincarnation. We want to start by being really clear about the problem that we're trying to investigate, the test case. And the fact is reincarnation speaks of a soul. And what on earth is a soul? Whenever I say soul, my soul hurts. It gets to the soul of an issue. She has a beautiful soul. Uh, I am talking about an essential representation of a person, that which makes them most uniquely them those qualities that are most closely identified with how I understand them. When many or even most people say soul, that's not what they mean. I think others would say that a soul is an immaterial essence that is independent of our bodies, back to that idea of dualism. And that second claim is just one you can't support scientifically, at least not today. I'm not aware of any reproducible, peer-reviewed studies, forensic evidence, or observation that supports evidence for an immaterial soul, independent of our physicality. So the same must be true of soul-based reincarnation. If we talk more poetically, uh, as you were kind of doing about ourselves, that's not the essence of our personhood being uh, re. Manifest, and now our ideas, our beliefs, the things we teach, the actions we put into the world, those things certainly carry on generationally beyond our own death. And when I talk about the afterlife, that's one of the first things I talk about is the way that our memes move beyond us, especially if we live lives that impact other people. but that's that's not what most people are talking about when they talk about reincarnation, and frankly, not what most people are talking about when they talk about the afterlife, and I know that. So in response, I'd usually say, I don't know what happens when we die. Most people, most religious people, have a belief about the afterlife, specific beliefs about the afterlife that they tend to claim as fact, and I don't do that. That's because there's no way to tell what happens when we die empirically and all the different ideas about death and the afterlife that exist across religious traditions, there is no way to weigh one claim against another and determine one as factual and the other false. They're not falsifiable ideas. If one person says, I believe that when I die, I'm reborn as another person, and another person says, I believe that when I die, I stand before God and give an account of my life. And a third person says, I believe that when we die, we're all admitted into heaven with God. How do you know which one of those three people is right? What evidence would you cite? What support for their claim would make one claim better than the other? Hence why I say I don't know what happens in the afterlife. I certainly have a hope that in some way we are reunited with God after death. But I would never say that's a a better or more thoughtful or more evidence-based claim than someone else who believes that we are reincarnated or that reincarnation is a path that leads to enlightenment or the afterlife or whatever system that their faith dictates. I think that it's best given the incredibly common belief in the afterlife human societies have, and the fact that we can't really weigh our claims against each other, the best path forward is graciousness and generosity towards other people's beliefs about death and what comes after it. I mean, how many ethnic conflicts, how many family relationships, how many personal animosities have been related to the passion we put into our ideas about death and the afterlife and how much unnecessary conflict has been a result. I would rather let people believe what they believe and figure out how I can make my life and their life better in this life, the one that we all know is happening, the one that we all agree is there. How can we best embody an ethic, and corresponding behaviors that make this life as close to heaven or better rebirth for everyone.
1: Hi, Science Mike. My name is Karen. I'm calling from up in Canada. I've been really thankful over the last year for both the Liturgist podcast and this one as I've been going through a deconstruction of my Christian faith. And I'm trying to inch my way towards reconstructing Um, something, albeit with open hands. So my question is about the personal nature of God. You often speak about God as a ground of being, or God not being a being, but being itself. On one hand, I really relate to that concept, but I have trouble putting it in relation to a God that you can have a relationship with. In your podcasts, I've heard you talking about God both in these ways And in a way where you speak to God and have a relationship with him. Part of my deconstruction of faith has come from the question that if God has some sort of personhood or personal nature, I, as a person, have trouble relating to the way he or she chooses to love the world Um, Looking at the classic question of senseless suffering or why it's so difficult to do good without some negative consequence or another, I guess what it comes down to is the question, if God is good and personal and all powerful, why would he or she make it so difficult to be in a shalom type relationship um, with him or her, with others and with creation? I know that this question is likely unanswerable ones, so instead maybe you could talk about how God um, is the ground of being and how that relates to God as a perfect, highly relational, and all-powerful being. Thanks so much for your time. hope to hear back from you.
0: Well, it's funny you've asked me the question. I've spent more time considering than any other in my life. And it's one I don't have a great answer for. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I don't think there's any question I've researched or considered or wrestled with as much as this one. You see, the tension between a God that seems plausible with what we know about the universe through science and a God we can know and experience was the single biggest point of friction as I returned to faith. Um, It's something I've wrestled with so much and is so fundamental to my faith today and and how I relate to God that I spent two chapters, the longest, most dense chapters in my book uh, on this topic, in in my book Finding God in the Waves. And that's because the attributes we've assigned to God in uh, Christian history and church theology, Christian theology, are really a pickle. (laughs) So God's all-knowing, God's all-powerful, God is loving, good, and just. Well, already an all-knowing and all-powerful God is kind of a contradiction because God's power would be constrained by God's foreknowledge if you think about it temporally, like if God knew what's going to happen or what God's going to do, God can only do that, or either God's knowledge is wrong or God's power is limited. Uh, Of course, I would say one possible pushback against that idea would be it assumes God exists in a temporal, causal context, and a God we sort of understand through physics, a God that's compatible with relativity and space-time, would not necessarily be causal, would not be temporally bound uh, in, in any way. Which is, frankly, an existence so alien we can't imagine it. A word like being or consciousness it, it has no bearing on an entity which is not bound to a temporal awareness. We don't even know what awareness would look like, what awareness would be, independent of a temporal context. We really can't imagine that. I've never seen a philosopher or physicists make a convincing description of what that would look like. Um, So already when we talk about these ideas, we're using uh, language which was designed to help us function at our scale and applying it to scales of reality uh, that our math really has trouble describing, much less our rhetoric. This is, by the way, why I'm driven to mysticism, that even the god in physics... Is a God so foreign to me that uh, I'm doubtful of my ability to understand or describe that God, even if I have genuinely experienced that God, which even that idea has a question mark behind it. Have I ever genuinely experienced God? We'll talk a little bit about that in the next question, so I won't waste more time on it here. And then, as you said, if we imagine a God who is at least loving— and in some way, all-powerful, all-knowing, in this, this weird, non-temporal context, what on earth do we do with suffering? This is called the problem of evil. Now, I look at the suffering in my life, and I look at how it's been good for me, how it's caused me to grow, how it's given me new perspectives. But the fact is, as suffering goes, I've had pretty healthy suffering, really normal suffering um, from growth, from loss. From some trauma. But but on the scale of, of human suffering, I really haven't suffered that much. So it's more difficult for me to say in some of these truly horrific and what we call unnecessary suffering that it somehow contributes to good in all cases. That would be a really terrible claim for me to make on behalf of someone else. And there's this whole discipline of study and philosophy called theodicy which make a, makes a defense of God's character in the face of the problem of evil. And I've just never seen an argument from theodicy that made me comfortable with the problem of evil. This is also why I am a mystic. God is a terrible math problem. My friend Morgan Guyton says that. God is a terrible math problem. When we look at our neurological relationship with God, the kind of thinking required to unpack problems like these is antithetical to having spiritual experiences and indeed experiencing a personal God. So I counteract my philosophical theological wrestling with lived experiences with my faith. Practice of faith in community, practice of faith in prayer, practice of faith in liturgy, things that make me feel close to God, I do an equal or greater time to philosophizing and deconstructing, as we so often say in this little community, deconstructing. which How long has that even been a word, by the way? (laughs) I hear it all the time, but I don't feel like that's a a word that uh, has been around all that long. Could be wrong. I didn't look it up. And I don't have a huge problem with this apparent contradiction of a God who I talk to in prayer and a God who seems to reach out to me at different points in my life with love and the utter implausibility and logical philosophical problems that raises because human beings are just equipped with models that help us make sense of the world. And even two of the best models I know that are the best grounded in evidence don't work with each other. The first is the standard model of physics. The standard model does a great job of explaining the quantum world. In fact, the more we test it with particle accelerators, the better the standard model of physics works. The better uh, it appears to really describe reality more than any competing theory. Uh, which is a problem because the standard model of physics works by ignoring gravity. It pretends there's no such thing. (laughs) Oh, that's an issue because the other major system in physics that gets shown to be correct over and over is Einstein's theories of relativity, general and special relativity. And they work by ignoring quantum phenomena. They only work at these larger, you know, massive scales and very high velocities. So what do we do with that? Well, in science, we just admit those two models are incomplete and we're working on making them better over time. But today we know which contexts they work in. So when I'm trying to describe God in a way that my mind can agree with, I talk about a ground of being. I talk about a God who is not a being, a God who has no consciousness, a God who simply undergirds all of our reality. And I let that model work in that context. But when I need to talk to God in times of celebration or times of grief or times of need, I use a different model of God, a God who walks with me, and talks with me and tells me I am her own. Then this is the God that I communicate with in prayer. And those two ideas don't work with each other. So what? They're models. I don't offer myself the conceit that I've mastered God or figured God out any more than I offer myself the conceit to say that I have figured out physics or the brain. I have enough trouble lacing my shoes. How could I be (laughs) so egomaniacal to think that I have life or physics or the brain or indeed God figured out? What I have is a model that, as best as I can each day, points me and other people towards God. My work is about helping people experience God for themselves, to find an, their own model, their own map to the divine that works in their context. And I'm just not sure we'll ever have a model or map of God that's universal, that works in all contexts, uh, in the same way that we, we really may never have a unified theory in physics that describes everything. And to some degree, I think that's quite beautiful. Um, it means no matter how much we learn, There's always more to discover, and that sounds divine to me. Our last question comes in via email, and it reads, Hi Mike, I have a follow-up question on the last segment of episode 72. A listener was asking about spiritual experiences and why he doesn't have them. I unfortunately am in the same boat as that listener. And your response does make sense that the more we practice spiritual exercises, the more our brains respond to them. However, you approach spiritual experiences from a biological or neurological standpoint. Here's my quandary To me, this physiological approach seems to mean that there is no spirit or truly spiritual experiences, that they're all biological or neurological and that if there is a God, our experiences don't come from it per se, but from our brain. If this has any truth to it, it seems to be a score for atheism. Of course, I am taking an extreme side for the sake of being poignant in my question. I do believe there are truly spiritual experiences. But could you clarify and elaborate on your response? Thanks for all you do, and I look forward to hearing your response. Kyle Davis, California. Well, Kyle, first of all, remember I am super comfortable with atheism, atheists, and materialism. Uh, My understanding of God actually embraces materialism. And if it turns out that there is truly no supernatural God and that all the conventional ideas about spirituality uh, are simply describing brain states that does not diminish my faith because the heart of my God is physics, and I just admit that. But I'm also a mystic, and I have these experiences that seem to transcend my understanding of reality that I hold in this open hand, as as other uh, listeners of the show have alluded to. Uh, but let's let's kind of unpack this a little bit. All human thoughts, feelings, and experiences happen in the brain. All human experiences are biological in origin. When you are in love, we can see that happen in the brain. When you eat pizza and you enjoy pizza, we see that happen in your brain. When you look at a sunset or a night sky and you're overwhelmed by its beauty or sent into a state of transcendence, we see those things happen in the brain. So are there any truly emotional experiences if emotions just happen in the brain? What does that mean? Where else would emotions happen but in our brains? Is love any less powerful just because we experience it via brain function. See, to me, the neurological grounding of our spiritual experiences doesn't prove or disprove anything about spiritual realms or experiences. For the person who believes we have an immortal soul, who believes God is a supernatural being, a classical theist, the fact that our brains reflect this world don't disprove those ideas or prove them. They simply show the brain's role in our interpretation of reality. You see, the fact that we can brain scan you while you taste pizza doesn't prove or disprove that pizza exists either. If we want to test the existence of pizza, we would use different means of inquiry. (laughs) When we study the brain, we're studying your response to something, how it changes you. And it's helpful to do that. It's helpful to study the brain's reaction to faith because it allows us to tailor our behaviors in a way that supports the goals we have for faith practice. If you want to feel God is close, understanding how God develops in the brain and what people who feel close to God, how their brain functions can help you move your brain to a state more like that. And this is true in many ways uh neurological insights help us understand better approaches to marriage and family therapy it helps us better approaches to anxiety just because we can study how the brain responds to your spouse it doesn't mean your spouse doesn't exist right it just means this is one very helpful lens to look at human belief and behavior because nothing is influential in human belief and behavior as our brains. Truly spiritual experiences. What is that? (laughs) When I heard Jesus speak to me, that happened in my brain. Was there some outer stimulus that created that? Or was it completely an inner feature of my mental landscape? I don't know. But I would call that a truly spiritual experience. The light I experience standing on the beach. The light I've seen more recently in meditation and encounters with God. Are those truly spiritual experiences? I think so, even if we're living in a materialistic universe. We talk a lot about this in an upcoming episode of the Liturgist Podcast, where my scientific hero, Andrew Newberg, was our guest. He wrote a book called "How God Changes Your Brain." I really recommend you check that out. He talks a lot about neurotheology and how it may be—it's perfectly compatible with more conventional beliefs about God and and beliefs about spirituality. Of course, I talk about it a lot in my book as well. Although I, I'm tired of plugging every question you guys keep asking questions related to what I wrote the book about, which is why I wrote the book as I did. But back to your question. I don't know. I just would worry less about trying to decide what is truly an spiritual experience or not. Instead, look at is this changing who you are? Is it propelling you to a posture of gratitude or appreciation of beauty or love for other people? The test of a truly spiritual experience, is how it changes you and how it changes the way you move through this life. False spiritual experiences uh, would be those experiences that don't change you, that don't grow you, that don't move you to become who you can be, and in doing so, help others do the same. Well, that does it for another episode of Ask Science Mike. I'd love for you to have your question on the show. You can do that by going to asksciencemike.com. Scroll down to the bottom. You can record a voice question or type an email out and send it to me. We'll review that and um, many questions make it on the show. You can also use the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter or YouTube or SoundCloud. It is way less convenient, but uh, (laughs) feel free to do that. We do grab questions using the hashtag. I want to thank my patrons on Patreon for supporting the show, for also doing the hard work of selecting every question on the show. If you'd like to be one of them, go to asksciencemike.com, click on the Patreon button, and you can learn more. If money's tight, I get it. Do a rating on iTunes. Really, really helpful. Uh, or you can share an episode you enjoyed on social media. Both of those things help the program grow. I want to thank Andrew Galucki for his work in pre-production and Greg Nordine for producing and sound designing Ask Science Mike. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.